Ezekiel chapter 7 is where we're going to begin our study tonight. As Father, we do ask that you bless this time in the study of your word. We're, we're blessed to be able to use the technology to do these Bible studies uh, continuing through the Old Testament, through the major prophets. And Lord, I pray that tonight, that as we go through these chapters uh, that are before us, that we know that you desire for us to make application. And Lord, uh, these are hard words, but it really shows us the seriousness of sin. It really shows us uh, how sin hurts your heart and it hurts us. And Lord, the consequences of sin and the bondage that it brings and the captivity that it brings, even as it literally brought captivity to the children of Israel. So Lord, help us be attentive now in the next few moments as we look at these verses that are before us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Ezekiel, keep in mind historically that he went in the second deportation of the Babylonian captivity which began in 605 B.C., Jeremiah declared that it will be 70 years of captivity that uh, you will be in, and they would come back after the decree by Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians in 536 B.C. for Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest to bring a remnant of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But it began in 605 B.C. with Daniel and, and the choice men of Judah taken off into captivity to Babylon. Daniel would be used by the Lord to be in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar to give his visions at that time and to minister to him. We know Ezekiel would be taken in the second deportation in, in 597 B.C. He is with the captives there in Babylon, as we have seen. And then there is the final destruction of Jerusalem that Ezekiel is speaking about. So sometimes people get a little bit mixed up. They think, well, I thought they were in captivity. But there was a remnant of the people that was still left in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is there. He's ministering to the kings of Judah, particularly Jehoiakim. And then after that, it would be Zedekiah, the last king, who reigned right before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we see that Ezekiel, as he's speaking to the captives, he's speaking about their captivity. He's also speaking about the, the judgment uh, that uh, is going to come to them. And as we saw in the previous chapters, he spoke about the siege against Jerusalem, again being destroyed in 586 B.C. When Ezekiel saw that vision and gave that prophecy, it was still yet future. The sword against Jerusalem, and we also saw that how he is going to judge um, the idols that were in the land. And we're going to continue to see that judgment is going to be spoken against his people. Now, as we read these words, these words can be very harsh. They seem uh, very difficult to read. And the Lord talks about the severity of the judgment and the completeness of the judgment. And he also speaks about his anger being aroused because of their idol worship and refusing to turn to him. And I want you to keep in mind as we read that, we, we can picture God, you know, up in heaven and just angry and, and uh, you know, full of wrath and all of this. But keep in mind that it's a righteous anger. And, and God has a righteous anger towards his people 
that he has been trying to get to turn back to him for many, many years. You can go back to Isaiah uh, that was prophesying over 100 years before this uh, in his time. Uh, ever since they began to fall into idol worship soon after the reign of Solomon. And Solomon actually introduced idol worship back into the land uh, as we read the historical books. But here's the thing. It was a righteous anger. Jesus, you recall, as we're going through Matthew's gospel on Sunday mornings, that Jesus, you remember that he went into the synagogue and the religious leaders were watching him. And there was a man there with a withered hand that was in the back. And they wanted to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath day. And, of course, Jesus knew what they were up to. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus looked at those Pharisees with anger. It was a righteous anger because they didn't care about the people. Uh, they only had contempt towards the people, put heavy burdens on the people. They didn't care about that man with the withered hand. They were just using him uh, to try to trap Jesus. So Jesus looked at them with anger. When Jesus went into the temple twice in John chapter 2 and then in the synoptic gospels, as you read at the end of his life right before he was crucified, he uh, would go into the temple and he overturned the money changers tables. He made a whip and he, he drove out those who uh, were, uh, you know, selling the sacrifices. And, and you can picture Jesus just kind of being out of control. You can picture Jesus, uh, you know, just with this anger on his face, but it was a righteous anger. He said, you've made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into the den of thieves, is what he would cry out in the second uh, cleansing of the temple. The first cleansing, he said, you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. You're ripping the people off. So keep in mind that God's anger is a righteous anger. When I get angry, oftentimes, it leads to sin. And Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Oftentimes when I get angry, it, it can be a selfish kind of thing, a sinful kind of thing, a carnal kind of thing. So God has a righteous anger, uh, but also keep in mind, too, that his heart is hurting. He does not delight in pouring out judgment on his people. And we're going to see that Ezekiel is going to declare that of the Lord as we continue through Ezekiel. He doesn't delight in judgment and bringing judgment to his people. His heart is broken over it. So we're going to see that uh, he's going to continue to speak of the judgment of God that is coming. That's very near, particularly when it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem. But the judgment will be complete. Let's begin to read in chapter 7 of Ezekiel. That moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. Uh, and end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you. And I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now a couple of things here is we open up chapter 7. That the focus here is judgment, not on the idols. That was in the previous chapter, but on the land. The four corners of the land meant no portion should escape God's judgment. The four corners is an expression, a poetic expression. We see it in the book of Revelation when in the judgments. In that final seven-year period prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, that what we see there 
is there's the angels holding back the four corners of the wind as the trumpet judgments are about ready to be poured out. And that's an expression. It doesn't mean that the world is flat. Uh, It's just a poetic expression. We know that the Bible declares that the world is round and uh, the circle of the earth. He throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. The only way that that can happen is if, you know, the world is round. So we know very clearly that the world is round. But the four corners of the earth, even the Marines use that poetic term that we, you know, defend our country to the four corners of the world. And here, no no portion of the land is going to escape. It's going to be complete. And here, as he is talking about the uh, judgment that is going to be severe as well, complete, it will happen. And also, verse 4, we're seeing that term again, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, He's going to repeat that over and over again, as we have seen already in Ezekiel, that you may know that I am the Lord. And he wants to bring them to the point, because they absolutely refuse to acknowledge him, turn to him, to follow after him, to listen to him, to worship him. They've given their hearts over to the idols, to that which is false, that which is sinful and perverse. And he says, I'm going to bring you to the point that you may know that I am the Lord. There's a purpose in this, not just because he's angry and he wants to zap them, but that they may come to that point to realize that truly he is the Lord. These idols aren't going to help us. Uh, These idols are, are not truly the Lord. And we know that the scripture also says that when the Lord comes back, that the nations will see that he is the Lord. And he's going to rule the nations when he establishes his kingdom in the millennium reign with a rod of iron. And and they're going to know that that he is the Lord. Uh, When Pharaoh... Uh, It was Moses that said uh, to Pharaoh, let my people go. And the Lord said that I'm going to show Pharaoh that I am truly the Lord. So there's a purpose in this and the judgment that comes. And that is that they may seek very clearly that he is the Lord uh, that truly reigns. But we continue in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a single disaster. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Verse 7, doom has come to you. You who dwell in the land, the time has come. A day of trouble is near and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. So that word come is mentioned here, uh, I believe, used some six times in verses 5 through 7 that we just read. And God is speaking about those who remained in the land. But behold, it has come. Um, Doom has come. The time has come. Jesus Christ is going to come. And it reminds me, as he has told us in himself, we read in the Gospels, and throughout the the epistles, we see that the Lord is going to come. And our prayer is, Lord, come quickly. But as the author of Hebrews says, that he who shall come uh, will come, and he will tarry no longer. He is going to come back. And here he's speaking about this judgment is going to come. It, it is certain. And we need to remember that the prophetic scenario that is before us, that it will take place. And there will be that period of time 
where he's going to pour out his wrath in a Christ-rejected world. Now, here's the thing to think about. Sometimes people say, well, it seems like God here, as we go through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as, as we look at these books and the minor prophets, it's judgment, judgment, judgment. And God seems to be a God of judgment in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he mellows out. And, and, you know, it's, a, it's the new covenant. It's Jesus that's, you know, down there, you know, trying to make peace. And we picture God the Father up in heaven wanting to strike everybody with lightning. But he mellows out in the New Testament. No, it isn't that way at all. You see, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second person of the Trinity. Jesus said, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip said, show us the Father that it may suffice us. Oh, Philip, you've been with me all this time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, the Father and I are one is what he would declare in John's gospel. He's the, uh, the express image of the Father, the perfect expression uh, of the Father in essence and in nature. Uh, and we know that if you want to know the heart of God, then Jesus says, look at to me. Philip, you've been with me all this time. And we know that the Father declared his name to Moses that I am the one who's long-suffering, patient, uh, abounding in mercy. Uh, And the Lord didn't want to bring this judgment to his people, but they absolutely refused to him. And again, we're going to see that he doesn't delight in judging his people as it will be declared. His heart is broken over it. But we also, if we think that he just mellowed out in the New Testament, I tell people, read the book of Revelation. Because Jesus said that there's going to be a time during that time that we read about in Revelations chapter 6 through 19 that there will be great tribulations such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. He is going to judge a Christ-rejecting world. And he is going to judge the nations to where he is going to establish his nation. And so we read about those judgments in the book of Revelation, and they're very, very heavy. So God's heart is the same. He is uh, compassionate, full of mercy, lamentations, that his mercies are new every morning, and great is his faithfulness. And, and we see here that they had refused to turn to him, and he, the judgment will come. Know this, that Jesus will come. John was told by the angel, write these things down that must shortly take place. Not that they might take place, or it's a possibility. They must shortly take place. And those are very heavy chapters as we read about the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation period. But we do continue here in verse 10 uh, that, Behold the day, behold it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude, none of them, nor shall there be wailing for them. Verse 12, the time has come. The day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. Uh, And for the vision concerns the whole multitude, we read in verse 13. And it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. So you sold your land, your inheritance, which was very important inheritance. You didn't do that. Remember Ahab wanted to, uh, to buy a, uh, a vineyard from Naboth and, and uh, there in uh, the Old Testament. And he said, no, I can't sell it to you. And, and a, you know, Ahab wanted 
wanted to make a vegetable garden, but uh, inheritance was very, very important. And, and not the buyer's going to rejoice, the seller, you're going to mourn, but in this judgment, no one's going to win. The land won't matter because of the severity of the judgment. Now, I want us to notice something in verse 10. It's kind of interesting that he uh, is prophesying, and the Lord says, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. And we know that, remember that in the declarations against the other nations that the Lord made in Jeremiah and Isaiah, that oftentimes as he was speaking to the nations surrounding Israel, the judgment that would come to them, and to Babylon as well, and Assyria, he would speak of their pride. Your pride is going to bring you down. And we also know that uh, in Israel, there was the, the, the pride that was prevalent among the leaders and also the religious leaders that were bringing the people down. Pride is such a terrible sin. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. We know that verse there in the book of Proverbs. It is the sin that led Lucifer as became very prideful in Isaiah chapter 14. He wanted to exalt himself above God. He wanted to sit upon the throne of God, to be worshiped as God. Uh, and we see because of that, he would be brought down to the lowest pit as Isaiah would prophesy. And there he's speaking about the king of Babylon, but we know that it also speaks of, of Lucifer who became Satan himself. And we know that pride that can cause us to fall, and, and, and we need to be careful of that. We need to always have our hearts before the Lord saying, Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. But it reminds me also, as we read, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. I can't help but think about that story back in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 17. You know the story about Aaron's rod that budded? And the, what led to that, you go to Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, what happened is that there's a, a group of men that came with leaders of the congregation of Israel to Moses and to Aaron. And it was led by Korah and, uh, and Dathan and uh, some others that came to Moses and said, Moses, Aaron, you guys think you're really special. You've taken too much upon yourself. Well, we're special too. And the text seems to indicate that Korah, even though there was Dathan and others, and 250 leaders of the congregation of Israel that came with them, and they're challenging Moses. They're challenging Aaron. And as you read chapter 16, you see that they particularly were challenging Aaron when it came to the high priestly office. Now, we know as we read the Old Testament, as you read the, the book of Exodus, as you read the book of Leviticus, as you read the book of Numbers, that God set up the priesthood. And those of the tribe of Levi would be of the priesthood, but only those who are direct descendants of Aaron. And the high priest was the one that would go behind the veil in the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was only on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the lead that was, lid that was on the uh, Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the nation. 
And every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest because there was different families of the Levites. Aaron was, uh, uh, you know, of the Levites, and so was Moses. But you see there was different families that had different responsibility. The Levites assisted the priest in the ministry there at the tabernacle and also in the temple. So as you read all that, you see that God had an order, and he would give uh, the responsibilities as you go back to Numbers chapter 4. And I don't mean to bore you with the priestly office and their duties of the Old Testament, but uh, here is something that we need to understand. Here is Korah, as you read that he is the son of Kobath of, of the tribe of Levi. So he was a Levite, and he was of the family of Kobath, Kobath, that family, there was three families of the Levites. The direct descendants of Aaron's, they were the priests, um, and they would go into the temple, the priests. Uh, they would go into the holy place and in the tabernacle as well, and they would fill up the seven-branch menorah with oil. Um, they would change the showbread table. They would burn incense. They were involved in the sacrifices that were brought to the people that you read about there in the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 7, the different sacrifices that were brought. The Levites assisted the priests in their ministries. They, they were not priests, but they had different responsibilities. And it's interesting as you read it, the family of Koath that Koah was from that's coming and challenging Aaron about being the high priest. Aaron, you're the high priest. You get to go hope behind the veil once a year. You get to be in the presence of God, the tangible presence of God. That was an awesome thing on the Day of Atonement to go behind the veil to make you know, atonement for the nation as he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Well, I think he wanted that ministry. We're special too. You guys take too much upon yourself. And so he had a ministry, you know, Korah. Uh, the sons of Koath were the ones that, as you read Numbers chapter 4, that they would go into the tabernacle and they would cover the furnishings because whenever that pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day would move, then they had to break up camp and they had to move to their next spot, to, to wherever the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud would stop. And they were being led. It's, it's symbolic of being led by the Lord, being led by the Holy Spirit. And we know that uh, they had different responsibilities. You, the family of Koath, you cover the furnishings. You're going to bear the Ark of the Covenant, the shoebread table, the altar of incense, those things. You're going to carry the furnishings. Uh, the other family was the family of the Gershonites. They would take care of the curtains and, and all of that, and they would take care of the animal skins. And then there was the third family, the Maronites, that they took care of the sockets and all the you know, cords and everything like that. So they all had a different ministry responsibilities that were given to them. And the Lord said, if anybody goes into the Holy of Holies, besides the high priest, that it's going to be bad news, that they're going to be consumed. And that's what we see in Leviticus chapter 10, Nabat and Abihu, that they run in, they light their senses, they run into the tabernacle, they get consumed with fire. But as you start to put this all together, it's interesting that in First Chronicles, when we read about David, he did not build the temple, but he got everything ready for his son Solomon to build it. He got the spoils, he, you know, in the spoils that he won against the wars that he fought, he, he 
drew up the plans of the temple. Uh, it was all shown to him by the Lord. He got the Levites all in order, the priests in order, the musicians in order. Everything was ready to go. So when Solomon came on, he could just read the blueprints and everything that David did to get the Levites and the priests in order because by the time of David's time, there was a lot of priests. They couldn't all go to the temple to minister. There was a lot of Levites. And so they were in different orders and, and divided up to where by the time of Jesus, they would have a lot that would fall on them and they would go and serve you know, once a year or twice a year or something like that. But, but the Levites were the ones, as we read in First Chronicles, that did all manner of service. And, and I like that. So they were the ones that assisted the priests. They did all manner of work. And it reminds me of the deacons of the New Testament that they would be assigned to, to serve tables, to do the practical works. But here, to go back to what I was talking about, as we read about this, pride got into the heart of Korah and Dathan and the others. Korah's like, I want to be the high priest, challenging Aaron. And we know that what happened was is that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his family and Dathan and the 250 leaders of the congregation, and they fell into a pit, and they would be you know, judged in that way. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind is this. Listen, God's got a ministry for you. And he wants to gift you. He called you to that ministry. And we don't have to challenge anybody else for their ministry. And, and if we become prideful to where we think that, you know, we deserve this and I deserve this position or, you know, to be here, then that begins to show the pride that's in our heart, and we need to be careful. And what happened in, in Numbers chapter 17 is the Lord said, you know, get 12 rods from 12 of the tribes of Israel, and Aaron, his rod, put them into the Holy of Holies, and whatever rod blossoms, then uh, that is the one that I've called to serve me as the high priest. And, of course, Aaron's rod would blossom. So there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of lessons in that. And, and to say this tonight, that we need to be careful of pride, first of all. Second of all, that we don't challenge others in the ministry that God has given to them. And, and he has a ministry for you. And your ministry, listen, is just as important as anybody else's ministry. And, and then thirdly, to know that, that he wants to do a wonderful work in our hearts as we humble ourselves before him, and it's very important to keep that all in mind. So it reminds me of that the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. But we want to continue here in verse 14. They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, and but no one goes to battle, for my wrath is on all their multitude. They can't fight against the Lord, and the sword is outside, and the pestilence and famine within. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword. Whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. And those who survive will escape, verse 16, and beyond the mountains, like doves in the valleys, and all of them mourning, each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble, and every knee will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth, and horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face, baldness on all their heads, and they will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs, because it became their stumbling block 
of iniquity. So you're not going to be able to escape the judgment. It's going to be bad news for you. And uh, your money won't be able to help you in a day of wrath. Uh, there's going to be no food to buy. Remember that in Jeremiah, the food was running out there in Jerusalem. And they only had a little bit of bread to give uh, to Jeremiah. Uh, those things that are, you saw so valuable, you trusted in, are worthless. And to remember this, that what we do for Christ, that's what's going to last. Listen, every good gift comes from above. We know that. And the Lord is the one that blesses us. And as he blesses us, we're to be good steward of what God has entrusted to us. And we see Jesus talk about that in the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas, that, that we are to invest in the kingdom because we are going to give an account of that. We are to be good stewards of, of the, the unrighteous mamma. That is what we've been given now. He said, how can the Lord trust you with the righteous mamma? That is when we go... To be with the Lord when we'll rule and reign with him. So be good stewards of what you have. And also keep in mind that everything that we have now is temporary. And we're to use it for his glory, for his honor, for his purposes. Yes, they are a blessing. But that is what is so tragic about the prosperity movement that has uh, captured the heart of so many Christians. Uh, around the world, but particularly in our country, that there are those that are on the TV that that's all they talk about is money. Plant your seed faith, and God wants you to be rich. And they'll come up with sermons that have nothing to do with what the Word of God has to say, nothing about the cross, nothing about repentance, uh, and nothing about surrender to the Lord, nothing about being good stewards of what God has given to you. It's gimme, 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 like God is some celestial Santa Claus. And it's so unfortunate that they focus on the temporary. And it was even Paul that wrote to Timothy, those who teach that godliness is a means of gain, that is financial gain, is what he's talking about. He has, says, have nothing to do with it. Yes, God may bless you. And praise God if he does. But be good stewards of what he's given to you. So whether he's given you little or he's given you a lot in this world, be a good steward of it. Give thanks to it. It all belongs to the Lord. And store up your treasures in heaven. Send it ahead. Because what we've done in this life and how we've been a good steward of what has been entrusted to us is going to determine the rewards that we get and, and, and ruling and reigning with him. The Bible has a lot to talk about that. So... Be a good steward. Be a good steward of what God has given to you. And don't put your ultimate trust in those things. Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where rust won't come and destroy or moths eat or thieves break in and steal. But store up your treasures in heaven is what we're to do. These things, you guys trusted your land and all of that. The money, the silver, is going to do you no good. You can't take it with you. And in the judgment, it was going to do them no good. It wasn't going to help them. And so we continue in verse 20. For as the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in majesty, but they made it from the images of their abominations. They're detestable things. Therefore, I have made it like refuge to them. I will give it as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoils, and they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my sacred place, for robbers shall enter it and defile it. And so the Babylonians had come in, and they have taken taking the wealth of the nation and they'll defile and destroy the temple. In verse 23, make a chain for the land is filled with crimes of blood and the city is full of violence. 
Therefore, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles, and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes, and they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon them, and rumor will be upon rumor. And then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priests and the counsel from the elders. You know, it's really sobering what we read here is because, you know, here's the thing, um, that... Uh, there was violence that was in the city. We know that that was a condition that Isaiah and Jeremiah both spoke about, and the minor prophets, um, that uh, they were ripping each other off uh, and filled with crimes of blood. So I'm going to use the Gentiles to come in and, um, and use destruction. And you're going to seek peace, but there shall be none. It reminds me of what Paul writes about concerning the day of the Lord. When they say peace and safety, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, then sudden destruction will come upon them. And there will be a time in the tribulation period when it seems like this man of peace, it's a false peace, he will make a covenant with Israel for seven years, confirm a covenant according to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, and... Uh, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, the first seal that's opened up in the beginning of the tribulation period, that he comes riding on a white horse. He has a bow, but not an arrow. He comes conquering on the conquer, the Antichrist. He's coming by peaceful means. And then he will show his true colors, and sudden destruction will come upon them. And, and here they're thinking, nothing's going to happen to us. We, we're Jerusalem. We're the temple. Uh, look, everything's fine. And at that time, rumor will be upon rumor as disaster comes upon them, and they'll seek a vision from a prophet, but it won't happen. You know, the law will perish from the priests and the council from the elders. They had been listening to the false prophets and to the false religious leaders. In verse 27, the king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with desolation, and the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way and according to what they deserve. I will judge them, then they shall know that I am the Lord. And then as we move into chapter 8, and it came to pass in the sixth year and the sixth month of the fifth day of the month, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, and the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. So this vision takes place. You know, after Ezekiel's first vision that we read in chapter 1. And Ezekiel established as a prophet of God, and he's sitting with the elders of Judah. Perhaps they're desiring to hear from him. Perhaps they're wanting to know what's going to be the fate of Jerusalem. In verse 2 we read, Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward fire, and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my hair. And the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seed of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And verse 4, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision I saw in the plain. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes towards the north, and there north of the altar gate was the image of jealousy in the entrance. And therefore he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, 
to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again and you will see greater abominations. So Ezekiel's given this vision. Notice the appearance of, of God similar in chapter 1. Uh, but here Ezekiel, he's taken. The key is to the spirit lift me up between heaven and earth. His physical body would remain there with the elders. The elders didn't see uh, his body just leave, but um, you know they didn't see what he saw um, in this vision. But Ezekiel, in the spirit, just like John was taken, you know, in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he was taken. Behold, a door was open. He saw the vision of heaven. But Ezekiel here, he's taken to the north gate of the inner court there in Jerusalem, and, and also the known as the king's gate. And the king's gate, which would be a prestigious gate only used by the priest and the kings. It is believed that in Solomon's temple there was three gates. There was the north gate, the south gate, and the east gate. And the three gates would bring the people from the outer court into the inner courts. The inner courts, uh, it wasn't in the temple, but the inner court was where they did the sacrifices at that time. And the people would come and they would bring their sacrifice, and the priests would do the sacrifices there in the inner court. At the north gate, there's this image uh, of an idol. And it was the place where God was to be worshipped. And he's told that as he sees, you're going to see great abominations. And you're going to see even greater abominations. And it is spoken here in these verses that we read, the idol of jealousy. Now in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord said that I am a jealous God. He is a jealous God, not that he's jealous of those idols that were there. They're nothing. But he's jealous for you and for me. And I mention that because there was a, there's a famous person that she uh, has, you know, claims to be religious, but taken people away from the truth of God's word. And she said one of the reasons was when she was a girl, she read that God is a jealous God. She didn't like that. Why should God be jealous? Why should he be jealous? Listen, our jealousy is weird, you know, at times when we become jealous of other people you know, envious of other people. God, he's not jealous of those idols. Again, not only does he have a righteous anger, but a righteous jealousy where he's jealous for you and for me. He doesn't want us to go after that which is false. He doesn't want us to go after that which is going to lead us to destruction or not be of any help to us. But his jealousy is a righteous jealousy. He's righteous for you and for me. He doesn't want us to go into the world, given to the deception of the enemy, go after idols, all those things. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he would write to the Christians there that I'm jealous for you. He cared about the people. And they would tend to be pulled into you know, the world and into the false prophets and teachers. You see that particularly in 2 Corinthians. He said, I'm jealous for you. So there is a godly jealousy that, that, um, that God has for us because he wants the very best for us. And as he's speaking about this vision in the inner court, the inner court, the north gate, was close to where they would use to bring in the sacrifices and where it was closest to the altar of sacrifice. Now Jesus is interesting. When you go to Leviticus chapter 1 and when it talks about the burnt offering, that the animal was to be killed north of the altar. So that's where they would bring the animals in, north of the altar that was there. And on the north side, they would sacrifice the animal. And I find that interesting because 
When you go to Israel today and you look at the Temple Mount area and, and I pointed out to you we're on the Mount of Olives and, and where the, the altar would have been, uh, if you go north of there and you follow the flow of the bedrock as the temple was built on Mount Moriah, they cut into the city and of course uh, the city has been destroyed and rebuilt but you can see the flow of the bedrock there from the Kidron Valley and at the top just north of where the altar would have been is a place that was called Calvary. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrifices, and he was killed north of the altar, outside of the city gates, on that place called Calvary, where he made sacrifice once and for all for us. So I find it interesting that this term north is used, and, and they had uh, been uh, using it to set up uh, idols, and, and we need to make sure that we don't set up idols that as we become a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And as we continue in verse 7, so he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing. So I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. In verse 11, And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel. In the midst stood Jerzaniah, the son of Saphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and the thick cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, Son of man, you have seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols, where they say, The Lord does not see us, for the Lord has forsaken the land. So Ezekiel is brought to this hole in the wall. He enters into the secret chamber of the wall. He sees all kinds of creatures and idols that the elders of Israel were worshiping. And it represented the secret chambers of their hearts, how they were given over to idols. And we need to, again, as I mentioned, be like David. I said, Lord, search my heart. I don't want to set up any idols in my heart. Because God sees our hearts. An idol that is established in my heart that has priority over my devotion and worship to the Lord. Um, I don't want those idols there that I'm turning to, that motivates me in life, that, that I end up, end up worshiping those things. And um, I, Lord, I want to worship you. You're the priority of my life. You're the devotion of my life. And then in verse 13, and he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they were doing. And he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping at Tammuz. Tammuz was an a idolatrous deity, a deity of vegetation. And uh, they would worship him in the springtime instead of worshiping the Lord, who is the one that blessed them and bringing them crops. In verse 15, and he said to me, have you seen this, O sand? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. And so he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house, verse 16. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple, and the Lord and their faces towards the east. And they were worshiping the sun towards the east. So the inner court was the place where, the, again, the priest would minister. And instead of facing the Holy of Holies in the temple, they were facing towards the east and worshiping the sun god. The inner courts where the sacrifices were. And they should have been crying out for God's forgiveness and mercy. That was the whole purpose of the sacrifices. 
And you and I, what we're told to do is be a living sacrifice because of the mercy of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. You know, present yourself to the Lord that you may know what is that good and acceptable will of God as you just give your devotion to him, as you're crying out to him, realizing the blessings that we have from him. And, and as we read in verse 17, and he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? It is a trivial thing in the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here. For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch in their nose. Therefore, I will also, also will act in fury. My eyes will not spare, nor will have pity. And though the cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So the branch in their nose, what does that mean? Some say that perhaps that it is some pagan ritual, uh, and there's good reason to perhaps think that. Um, And uh, some have suggested that some early Jewish commentators, that it's translated as stench. Uh, In other words, what they were doing was the stench in the nose of the Lord. And, of course, weird to be a sweet smell and aroma unto the Lord is what the Scripture says. Uh, What they were doing was an insult and a stench to God. But it probably has a meaning of it could be both because what they were doing obviously was a stench to the Lord, but some pagan practice that was involved. I want to end with this. It just reminds me of you and I, what Paul writes uh, to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? And so he, he's saying that we're the, the fragrance of Christ. We are to be the fragrance of God, and we're to be a fragrance of life, the aroma of life leading to life. A sweet smell and aroma to the Lord. And that's my prayer for us as we live our life. You know, I noticed uh, today uh, walking outside here in Greeley, it's an agricultural area, and the uh, farmers must be putting manure, and they do this time of year out on their fields, and you kind of smell it. And that's to prepare the ground for what they're doing. Uh, and you, you can smell it. And, and, um, and it's a good thing for the land and what is for here. But I know for me, I think, what is it? What kind of aroma do I put off to others? I want to put a sweet smell and aroma to others that are around me in my life. And I want to be the fragrance of Christ leading to life, speaking of life, pointing people to the one who provides eternal life as we turn to him. Folks, let's be a fragrance of Christ, the aroma of life to others, you know, and let's, let's be that to others that they may smell, you know, uh, the things of Christ, see the things of Christ in us and, and know um, that the Lord is so good and he desires uh, to bless them and for us to be a witness to them of, the, of just the goodness of Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these lessons We thank you that uh, we can go over these chapters and make application for us, an an important application. So may we be a a sweet smell and aroma to the Lord and a fragrance of Christ leading to life. 
And Lord, um, may we always be ones that we take our hearts, that we present it before you. And Lord, we don't want to have pride. We don't want to have idols. Lord, we want to be right before you. Lord, you are going to come back. Jesus promised he would. And we know that he will come. And a time's going to come when he will tarry no longer. So we want to be right with you, Lord. We want to make sure that, that we are walking with you and looking to you. Because there's going to be a time of judgment on a Christ-rejected world. And I thank you that we are not going to be there, the body of Christ. We're going to be in heaven with you. But Lord, I also know that in these last days, that there's the harvest that's going to come. And so, Lord, we want to be that witness to others. And I just want to pray, even if there's somebody here that you're listening to this Bible study or somebody shares it with you, that you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, give your life to him. That he is the author of eternal life. He is your salvation. There is none other. Uh, You can't save yourself. The only one that is the true God is the one proclaimed here in the Bible. And he sent his son to die for you because you sinned. And he went to that cross and he hung on that cross and he cried out, it is finished, the son of God, who said that he was going to go and die for the sins of humanity. He did the work. He paid the price. And then he was put into a grave and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. He proved and validated that he is truly the son of God who died for your sins. And that he conquers sin and death and is at the right hand of the Father and he says, come. Come to me to receive life. Even as we saw that Jeremiah was told, tell the people the way of life, tell them there's a way of death. And the way of life is through Jesus Christ because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, if there's anyone that you're listening, you're not right with God, get right with God. Because even as the judgment came suddenly upon them quickly, that, Lord, we know that tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. So if you're not right with God, cry out to him right now. Come to Jesus for salvation. Today is the day of salvation. To pray, Jesus, I come and I ask you to be my personal Lord and Savior. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. For me. You rose again. And, and Lord... Sit upon the throne of my life. You are Lord. You are the Savior of the world. And I thank you for forgiving me. And I want you to be the priority of my life as I learn about you and walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name. And I pray for all of us, Lord, um, that we would always have you to sit upon the throne of our hearts and lives every single day. Thank you for this time, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Hope to see you on Sunday, and uh, looking forward to our study in Matthew. Have a great rest of the week.